0: G'day. Welcome to Lunch Money. Uh, We are the online and social media home for special situations, workouts and capital raising professionals. My name is Nick Samios. Uh, I am the fund manager and director here at Hermes Capital and I'm your Lunch Money host and uh, a very special warm welcome to you. Uh, Well, what a week it has been. (laughs) It's been a week where obviously we've had the US uh, election And we're not quite sure what that means for Australia or for the world at this point of time. Does it mean more money printing? Uh, Does it mean more... Uh, trade wars with China. Who knows? Um, we've also had, uh, on the home front, we had the Melbourne Cup. And of course, Melbourne Cup Day means the day when the RBA makes its interest rate announcement. And uh, interest rates were once again lowered to record uh, low levels. I think the official rate now is 0.1%. And uh, that particular day, it was, it was 10 years uh, in Australia since the RBA had increased interest rates. Think about that. Ten years since interest rates were increased uh, in this country. You, you have to wonder what all of this means because we've got interest rates going down, but we've got high levels of unemployment. We don't really know what unemployment, the unemployment rate is because we've got JobKeeper. Uh, we've got these insolvency moratoriums, obviously, that come off, insolvent trading moratoriums that come off at the end of the year. And where what does it all mean? What's going to happen next year? Um, well, you could you could uh, seek solace by reading uh, the what I call the big-name uh, mainstream economists. Um, but I find that the big-name mainstream economists, firstly, I feel as though they've all been drinking from the same Kool-Aid. Uh, and I find them ideological as well. And uh, and in any case, even when they're not being ideological, uh, they tend for me uh, to be vague and noncommittal. Um, they, they like to hedge their bets, as you know, I'm sure you've, many of you have been to Economist breakfasts, and you're not quite sure what to think when you come out of it. So today uh, I have a very special guest, Martin North uh, from Digital Finance Analytics, who I'll introduce in just a moment, um, who it's a great privilege of us actually to have him on, on a guest here at Lunch, Lunch Money. And hopefully um, he will help to uh, tell us what to really expect next year. Um, Before I get to that, I'd just like to quickly remind you to uh, subscribe to this humble podcast and uh, to give us a like. I mean, why don't you like uh, this particular episode? That'd be great, whether it's on uh, Facebook, uh, YouTube, uh, LinkedIn, or for that matter, um, Apple Podcasts. How about that? So without further ado, I would like to introduce our special guest, Martin North from Digital Finance Analytics. G'day, Martin.
1: G'day. Good to see you.
0: Fantastic! I'm very, very privileged to have you uh, as a guest, Martin. I am one of your one of your fanboys, and I'm not embarrassed to say that. Um, no, I think I think I said to you the other day when when we were talking, I said, you know, I think that you know, if someone came from from a foreign country or from out of space and landed and said, look at what's going on, and just tell us what's actually going on. You know, look at the numbers. Tell us what's going on. Forget about the ideology. Forget about the politics. Can you just please tell me? What's actually happening? And that to me seems to be um, what you do.
1: Yes. Well, I, um, you know, being independent means I can actually just take uh, the data as it comes, think about it and uh, try and uh, really peel back the layers of the onion to really say, what is going on here? And uh, my background as a philosopher means that I also tend to go a bit further into things than than many people. There's a lot of ideology out there. There's a lot of mainstream media spin. There's a lot, of of course, stuff coming from the government, particularly now. But it's important to stand back and try to get a more objective and independent view, I think. And that's what we try to do at DFA. I think it's
0: wonderful that uh you call yourself a philosopher and uh, this is not the venue, maybe uh port and cheese sometime. I'd love to hear you sort of uh wax more philosophically outside of maybe the immediate realm of economics but tell us can you just tell us a little bit about your background
1: sure yeah, well you know philosophy is is interesting because it basically asks the question behind the question right why is it that things are the way they are, and there's a thing called the frame of reference, which basically says what's the context for the assumptions that people make. And look, my background is that I actually uh, spent some time at university in the UK, um, went to, to Oxford, uh, trained as a philosopher, then went into financial services, worked in London for a good number of years with uh, some of the big banks there, came out to Australia mid-95, uh, worked for some of the uh, the banks here, then went into consulting, places like Booz Allen, Anderson, and then uh, came to Fujitsu and Spent quite a long time there running a consulting business inside a big consulting and IT company. But about 10 years ago, came out and uh, started creating uh, digital finance analytics. Of the YouTube channel's walked the world, of course. And uh, that's really what I've been. So I've been running my own show for 10 years plus, been quite successful, I think, in terms of creating brand awareness. Showing how data is important. We survey households a lot of the time. And that really rose right back to when I was uh, in the UK in, in um, you know, 85 to 95. Uh, that was in where I started, surveying households, trying to get to understand more about what what's really driving them. And we also survey SMEs, again, did that way back then as well. So I tend to come from the consumer and business end rather than the corporate end out and then try and understand what's really going on what's driving people to do what they do what's the economic context for those households and businesses uh, and therefore what does that mean in terms of businesses and uh, servicing so that's how i've got to where i've got to um, I, i'm very proud of being you know an independent observer and so i don't tow party lines i basically try to go where the data takes us
0: yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean, look, uh, it sounds like in your background, when you're talking about Booz Allen and some of that consulting that you've done, so obviously you've you know you've you've been in the business of providing data that that people would make big financial decisions. Uh, you yeah. know Booz Allen aren't consulting to people who are making small decisions. So uh, obviously, uh, obviously that that's that's interesting. So you've been where the rubber hits the road in the past. I should say that anything we say today is not financial advice. And just for the sake of completion, we'll put up our financial advice disclaimer. Um, so if you need financial advice uh, go elsewhere where somebody knows your personal situation Um, I would like to show you Martin just a couple of uh, just I just want to show you something In, in our world uh, or in my world, you know, when we're talking about uh, special situations, and you know, it, uh, normally special situations entails uh, elements of distress, um, and that's that's you know, so we're we're funding special situations. And I said to you before, because of JobKeeper and because of insolvency moratoriums, things have been very quiet. And in fact, I'll show you some graph a graph here of the voluntary administrations uh, year on year, and you can see there the blue line is voluntary administrations last year, and the red line is. Uh, voluntary administrations uh, this year, and um, you know it, it sort of seems counterintuitive. You know, when, when this COVID thing first hit, all the insolvency people thought they were going to be run off their feet. Certainly, we thought that there'd be a, a huge demand um, for for our capital. But of course, you know, all of the government intervention has happened. They've kept the they've kept the economy afloat, and it does make it very hard uh, to see into the future. So, how, how do we see into the future? How what, what is going to happen next year?
1: <laughs> well, I guess there's a few important points to to make. The first is, of course, if you think about the amount of stimulus that's come in, it's a hundred billion plus from, from from the government, and that's including JobKeeper, JobSeeker, superannuation withdrawals, which, by the way, made probably the biggest contribution to uh, to people's finances. And so, as a result of that, we've seen household savings ratios rise quite significantly. We've seen, uh, of course, job keeper keeping people employed. So the real unemployment rate is way higher than the official rate. I reckon that about one in five uh, households are either unemployed or underemployed. That's 20% of the workforce. That's very, very high. And I don't think that's going to come down very Soon, so one of my observations is expects unemployment to go higher rather than lower from this this point forward. The right. second is, of course, JobKeeper has protected a number of businesses, and I think the most significant move was when they basically put the whole idea of a, a business could fail on ice until the end of the year. Frankly, and of course, you've also got the um, principal and interest repayment holidays mortgage holders and uh, other borrowers as well so that's really put the whole economy into a really weird situation where people can continue to trade insolvent where people can effectively get away without um, making any loan repayments what i worry about is the implications of this from two fronts if you are effectively trading with a business that's uh, actually trading insolvently but you don't know about it you're actually spreading the risks more broadly more broadly through the economy my worry is from my surveys, I survey small businesses, I think about, um, about 25% of businesses are basically saying to me they don't think they're going to survive over the next year or so. And that's because, of course, cash flow is a major a critical issue. So people are trading insolvent. That's a big deal, right? So I think at the end of the year, when the legislation is effectively reversed, unless they extend it, we're suddenly going to see a rush of people to the exit.
0: Mm. Well, let me ask you two questions on, on things that you've just, if I can sort of ask a couple yeah. of what you said. Now, the first thing you said, well, you said many things. One of the things you said was that you, there's been $100 billion worth of stimulus yep. uh, in JobKeeper and all the rest of it. And I'm going to ask a question that's not going to make me look very bright, but that's okay. Um, just So the $100 billion that is in stimulus. Now, the other day the RBA announced that they would be buying $100 billion worth of bonds. Uh, mm. if I'm correct. Um, again, this might sound like a silly question. is a hundred billion dollars a lot of money these days?
1: Uh, well, it's pretty much. So you know the, if you go back to uh, the the June quarter, that was more than twenty um, percent of GDP that was actually being thrown in to the system right from from government so so that is a big number. and by the way, that stimulus dropped by seventy five percent since, um, you know, the the last month or so, and will drop again by 75%. So essentially, once we get into next year, all that stimulus has gone, right? And interestingly, if you look at the budget, the amount of stimulus that the budget is talking about putting in is way lower than that. So people should not think that we've got all this liquidity, you know, all the Reserve Bank stuff is going to create massive amounts of additional um, momentum in the economy. We're actually fighting a receding tide of liquidity, right? Well, I do wonder.
0: Well, firstly, let me just ask you another thing. One of the points you also made was this insolvent trading issue, right? And you said people are telling you, I think you said 25% or some large number are telling you they don't think they're going to be in business when the music stops, whenever that might be. The thing is they're telling you that, right? But they're not telling, I bet you they're not telling their suppliers that, right? So this is where you have insolvent trading as a contagion. Uh, because you know you, you that one of those 20 you know those 25% of businesses they are ordering stuff that their suppliers are providing in good faith now of course when the 25% go under well then the supplier unless the suppliers have got robust balance sheets um you know they they they're going to find the pressure as well
1: yeah and the point there is it's not equal, equally spread across the economy right so a lot of it's in retail a lot of it's in the education sector a lot of it's actually in some of the construction sector um, uh, players too um, so yeah I'm expecting a a, a really big shock um, as that stimulus is, is withdrawn um, and as those rules change at the end of the year and of course the banks are now starting to um, actively approach uh, people who are no longer paying interest and in principal repayments on their mortgages and remember there's a share, fair share of small business owners who actually have a residential mortgage um, which secures the business Right. so that's another factor. Yeah. So that's another factor. So as well as the supplier risk, which I think is being massively um, understated as a significant risk ahead. The second is that this residential pressure on businesses who've got a secured uh, loan against a residential property and are now in difficulty means that they will may need to actually take quite drastic action and uh, you know the the interesting question is if you are in difficulty and and, you know again the regulations have been relaxed to allow people to sort of quote trade through this the question is is that sensible or are we actually building up a whole series of issues over the next few months and into the next year bearing in mind unemployment is going to go higher bearing in mind that um, the virus of course all that sort of you know Benign here at the moment. Around the world, it's still raging. So the international borders are going to stay shut probably for you know a good number of months, which means we're not going to get a whole lot of international tourists coming mm-hmm. into Australia. And many people in the tourist uh, and uh, related sectors are really struggling because of it. And you know, well, they'll fight for sort of uh, interstate movements. It's not enough to be able to support it. Education, of course, is a big sector, and that's very much uh, un- under pressure. So. Yeah there are so many um factors that i think people are not adequately taking into account now the truth is that there the government has thrown massive amounts of liquidity into um uh you know supporting the construction sector all those stimulus uh, home builder and those sorts of things, and the 95% loans for first-time buyers. So they're banking very heavily on the construction sector, but it's a very narrow, myopic strategy. What about the rest of the businesses? That's the question I've got.
0: Well, you know, there is this talk, of course, of uh, trying to kickstart the manufacturing sector, and we did a special uh, on that a, a few weeks ago. Um, so, you know, I, I guess, and the mining, the mining sector seems to be going okay. I mean, I was talking to uh, a finance broker yesterday uh, in Perth. You know, and I, you know, before COVID came along, my life was—I used to travel to Perth once or twice a month. For, you know, Melbourne, I, I was travelling all the time, so I used to you know, frequent Perth. haven't been there yeah. since, uh, since March, February. But he told me that basically it's been business as usual for the last six months in WA. I mean, they're, 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 apart from the fact there's no-one going there. But the, the mining sector is doing just fine, particularly mining services, which is more the space that we tend to play in. You know, All those guys right. with yellow, you know, yellow diggers and what have you, they get, they're going fine.
1: Okay, but the question is how many thousands of people does mining employ across Australia?
0: Yeah, not a lot,
1: right? And yeah, it's a it's a big economic driver in terms of exports. Although, of course, if China is uh, turning off coal, which it looks as they might well be now, um, yeah. and if Brazil is powering up their iron ore exports from Vale, um, we could suddenly find ourselves in a rather different situation. My point is, mining is fine, but it's not going to support the broader economy, right? Mm. Construction is 13% of the economic activity, right, and employs more than a million people. That's one of the reasons why the government's throwing heavy money in that direction. But that itself is not going to support the economy. My problem is that the businesses that need support, those small and medium enterprises, the ones that actually become bigger businesses with a bit of help, aren't getting the help. Right? And if you talk to um, a lot of those businesses, I do, many of them are not getting sufficient support in terms of uh, loans from the banks. The banks will always want security, yeah. and that's a problem. Yeah. Um, the banks would much prefer to lend more mortgages because that's you know more effective from their cost of capital perspective and the risks are essentially lower. It's messed the playing field.
0: And now if you go around town and talk to all of the insolvency people, whether you talk to the big firms or the small firms they're not getting any work and, and there there's no triggers. So whilst those small businesses that you're talking about, um, they're not getting any support. On one hand, they're not getting any support. But on the other hand, no one's pushing them either. So the the loan restructuring areas of the banks are not pushing anybody. And this is necessarily the area that we're talking about. The CBA home loans—they're not going to force home loan sales until September twenty-one. Um, I'm not exactly sure what that is, but but the, but whether or not it's home loans, I'm talking more in the commercial space. If you've got two or three million dollars uh, owing to Westpac or one of the major banks, they're not kicking you out. They're on a go slow. They don't want the negative press for a start. You know, the Banking Royal Commission is still fresh in everybody's minds. Uh, they don't want to cause contagion. They don't want to cause a run on assets. Uh, By The the ATO is normally a pressure point. Well, the ATO isn't winding anybody up. Um, creditors, well, creditors, the, the, the statutory demand process, whereas you used to be able to issue a statutory demand and have someone uh, wound up in more or less 21 days, that's been extended to six months and it's virtually pointless And what's the point of pointing a gun at someone and saying if you don't do what i tell you i'll we'll shoot you in six months um so there's no pressure on the other hand either so there's no you might say there's no support but there's no pressure and that's why everything we're in zombie territory
1: yeah and that's the point right the key question you've got to ask yourself was where is growth going to come from right yeah that's the key question and you know the reserve bank's estimate of growth over the next couple of years is a lot lower than it was previously right yeah. um the i daughter,
0: don't daughter, see
1: data or well we, we can do i mean it depends on how how detailed you, you you know you want to get because there's obviously quite a lot of information from from, from yeah. the reserve bank but let me make the general point first right so so essentially there is some growth but it's not very strong growth and if you look at it carefully um the growth engine in australia which was migration yeah. right has yeah. been turned off because of the uh, the, the border closures um, education is not there so we're not seeing that uh, engine firing right so so you know you go across tourism education migration all of those growth levers and look the, the truth is our economy has been firing more on greater numbers of people so if you measure growth it's gone up but if you measure growth per capita it's not been going up anything like as much so we've been effectively supporting the Australian economy simply by getting more people to come in. Now, the other point to make is that the disposable income that households has is a little bit up at the moment because many people have been saving, and, of course, they haven't made those mortgage and interest reprin- principal uh, interest repayments on mortgages, that sort of thing. But the fact is that there are many households who are now less able to spend. Three million savers, for example who are now seeing the interest rates on their term deposits drop to close to zero. They have no income coming from there, or the dividends from the banks way down from where they were previously. So what we are seeing is quite a lot of households have less disposable income. So that's another reason why growth will be lower. And I guess what I'm calling out is that I think this whole story of how this economy is going to go over the next two to three years is being spun by the government, but I don't think it's very credible. And as you start thinking about, you know, those small businesses that who may fail, the fact that the international borders will stay shut for quite some time, the fact that the money that's being thrown into the economy and even the Reserve Bank's direct liquidity um, is, you know, encouraging more people to borrow, to borrow, to borrow. But what happens if those people are unwilling or unable to borrow? Mm. And, uh, you know, well, one of the pieces I- of it. There's too much uncertainty.
0: When you say people, I know you're obviously you're talking about consumers and small businesses. Uh, the, the trouble in with small business, um, and I'm not talking about tuck shops. I'm talking about you know businesses are turning over five to twenty million dollars. Say, they don't know what's around the corner, and so what that they're reluctant to make the investments to borrow. Um, you know, so that, that that's the trouble. There's a reluctance to, to invest, which means there's a reluctance on the flip side of that to borrow the money required to make the investment because no one's really sure what's going to happen.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Let me just show you this slide, a slide that came in from the Council of Financial Regulators in October. It's a bit of a busy slide, so I won't... Uh Hold it up for long, but I just wanted to show you that this is what they said. Look, basically, what they said was a key focus was the importance of the continued flow of credit to the economy, particularly to small and medium enterprises. Members agreed that demand for credit among SMEs has been subdued and improved confidence in the health and economic outlook will be critical to addressing this. So, what they're basically saying is credit demand is the issue, not supply. And if I just show you with this other chart here, This is actually the most recent credit aggregate data. And this shows you that the broad money, so the amount of money flowing around in circulation has gone up by 12% over the last year. But total credit growth is only 2%. That's as low as it's ever been, right? So we actually have a fundamental problem insofar that there is plenty of money flowing from the reserve bank and from you know the hundred billion that you mentioned, et cetera, et cetera. All of that sort of QE, but it's not actually going into productive use, right? Yeah. So yeah. the economy won't function properly unless people are willing and able and confident enough to borrow. And the fact is they're not. And, th- and that's one of the reasons why this whole argument, there's a big argument out there about, you know, is the future gonna be inflationary or deflationary, right? So the yeah. argument is all of this money printing, all of this QE will lift asset values and that is gonna create massive inflation. This chart that I showed you earlier on and the fact that the Quant- Council of Financial Regulators is saying credit demand is the problem. If there is insufficient demand for credit, you can offer as much credit as you like at low rates as you like, but it's not going to have any difference. And that's my problem with the Reserve Bank strategy. Taking rates down um, you know, may or may not be a good strategy, but it's not going to actually encourage people to borrow unless they've got the confidence to borrow. And then the question is, what gives them the confidence to borrow? It's not necessarily low interest rates, because low interest rates mm. are a sign of a poor economy, a poorly managed economy, rather than anything else.
0: All right, well, so so... <laughs> I get absolutely howled down on Twitter as if I'm some sort of a Neanderthal whenever I try and advocate good old-fashioned Austrian, you know, supply-side economics, just deregulate the hell out of everything and cut taxes... Um, and everyone goes oh look you don't understand mmt you know and, and <laughs> all this sort of stuff i mean without i know we can talk about it for hours but what's your take on all of that like why am i neanderthal for for thinking that deregulation and tax cutting is such a terrible idea given what you've just said about zero interest rates are not going to make a jot of difference and why is mmt so wonderful
1: okay well there's two points to make the first is when interest rates are very low taking rates even lower has a, only a marginal improvement, right? So as if rates were 10%, you move them to 5%. That's a huge um, positive impact. But you know, moving from a very small to a very, very small number has hardly any impact. So we've got to the point now where we've, we, we've reached what's called zero bounds. The main reason interest rates are so low is to try and drive the exchange rate lower. Now, the Reserve Bank wants the exchange rate lower because they're hoping... That that will one import inflation from and, and two make us more competitive. So therefore, that will help help with growth, right? But the truth is that um, the exchange rate today is seventy something, right? So that hasn't worked. So right. so basically, we're at, so that that strategy and that the ability of the Reserve Bank to move the exchange rate and indeed influence anything is pretty bad. Their forecasting is worse than mine, frankly. Um, the second point is. Rates are really, really low. That means that funding is really, really cheap. And the argument from the MMT is, oh, that means that you can now afford to borrow a lot. It doesn't really cost you anything at all because basically it's two sides of the same balance sheet just going higher. Um, you know, there's a transfer, but it, that's all it is. And it's what you do with it. Now, the question is what, that's the key point. It's what do you do with the money? Now, my argument is that MMT has a place if you can invest it in productive development of the economy and which means building infrastructure which means building new businesses and greater businesses i mean after the um the second world war we got ourselves out of a hole simply by significant expansion and development right yeah now but the money that's currently being created and thrown through the economy is not going to those productive sources so there is a big question as to whether mmt can work if the money is not going to the right places and my argument is looking at the supply of credit it's lower than it's ever been it's not hitting the the right areas so my view is that is not necessarily going to work and i,
0: I everyone I, says the mmt people say well there's been no consequences that we haven't had inflation and so yeah. the mmt's underlying thing that you can print money with impunity as a matter of fact you've got a moral obligation to print money and uh, don't worry, we'll, we'll dampen the, the inflationary effects with taxation. Now, my answer to that is, well, yes, I can drive a car off a cliff and for a, for some of the time there, I'm having a great time, um, you know, and I think that's where we are now. We're off, we've we driven the car off the cliff. The fact that we haven't hit the bottom and suffered the consequences doesn't mean that driving a car off a cliff is such a crash odd idea. And that's how yeah, I view it. No.
1: Yeah, well, I, I tend I tend to, to argue that um, it's opportunistic for, for the MMT argument. Um, yeah. There is definitely a, a place for government investment targeted. And personally, I think there should be a a government investment bank that's really set there specifically to invest in infrastructure for the long term. Because a lot of the money that's being um, thrown out there at the moment is not going. And look, just think about this: what proportion of the total government spend is on um, uh, things like unemployment and health benefits, it's very, very high. It's more than 50%, yeah, right? So, so, And in fact, we have a very bad set of parameters around the economy at the moment. So what we should be doing is thinking about trying to change it differently. Now, my own view is this, that we need to get rid of some of the regulation, get rid of some of the red tape, get rid of this whole idea of trying to control the economy. I think central banks should step back rather than a step forward. And basically, capital should be allowed to go to those areas where it can create the most benefit, that Mm -hmm. there will be and should be failures because what you're then doing is allowing capital to reallocate, which is the whole idea of the way that economies should work. But frankly, a a decade ago from the global financial crisis and since, nobody wants to actually allow anything to fail. They want to keep trying to keep all the balls in the air. And I would argue that the central banks have basically driven a whole series of bad outcomes because what they're doing is creating a bigger, bigger problem with more and more of this funny money flowing around the place. It's not actually getting to the right answer. And I would argue we're backing ourselves into this cul-de-sac where it's going to be very, very difficult to get out. Look Look at Japan. Look at the Eurozone. They've gone into negative interest rate territory, and they're still not doing the right thing. And the problem I've got is the argument of doing more of the same, only bigger, which is what the Fed is doing, expecting a different outcome is i think naive I think.
0: yeah i had an article uh warren hogan uh, wrote a great article the other day he was arguing that the, the consequences of free money i can't remember his exact words but the consequences of free money were financial instability uh because you have asset you know asset price distortion uh pushing activity outside the core regulated you know so money lending goes outside the banking system where it's not controlled and then of course economic efficiency in terms of uh, this zombie company scenario where companies that may or may not, you know, maybe shouldn't be in business are uh, competing with companies uh, that should be in business. I mean, I've got a saying, I've said it a few times on this show that everybody knows, uh, having watched a George uh, Romaro movie, that uh, zombies uh, love to live off the flesh of the living. Um, so, um, you know, that, that's, that, that's, that's, that's what's happening there.
1: Um, well, the key, the key the key point about zombies, that's really important, right? If you look at a lot of that liquidity that's been pumped around the system, right, a lot of firms have been buying back their own shares, artificially inflating their share price, but they're not actually productive companies themselves, right? right. House prices are going higher. The banks are getting bigger. It's not productive. That's the problem. We have to find an alternative uh, strategy, in my view, um, so that we actually become more productive.
0: Now, tell me, just in terms of where the rubber hits the road next year, um, I, I guess I've got I've got three questions. Let me throw them at you and then and then sort of answer them at your leisure. One thing is, do you think that we are going to see a lot of insolvencies come the new year? I mean, is that is that your is that what you're thinking? Uh, you know, what are the sectors that you think? You know, you've, we've already said that mining doesn't really employ enough people, even though it's doing well. I mean, what sectors do you think are the sectors uh, to be?
1: in next year?
0: I guess they're they're, they're my two questions, yeah. Um, Look,
1: the fact fact is, yeah, I expect higher levels of uh, insolvencies next year. The SME sector is going to be where it's going to be focused. Um, What's interesting is um, I can see particular geographic areas where we're going to have issues, and I'll just show you this map. Um, So this is a map um, around um, Brisbane, in fact, and the way to read it, we measure what's called financial stress. And so there are particular areas around Moreton Bay and down towards the Gold Coast. The the more red and orange, the worse it is over in Toowoomba. Now, these are from our surveys, and this is showing us the hotspots where we expect the default rates and delinquencies to be higher, and we measure it from an SME perspective, from a um, investment property perspective and from an owner-occupier perspective right so so expect to see in some areas considerable numbers of failures i'll give you an example on the gold coast um, in the gold coast there are a lot of people who are very reliant on the tourist sector there are also a number of people who are completely reliant on airbnb as a source of income for their investment properties and they don't have enough you know, have not enough people coming through at the moment um, those two examples. So that's to do with the international borders being shut and the fact that um, tourism is, is way off. Another example, another sector is in the uh, small business end of construction. So there are a lot of inde- independent tradies. Now, there's quite a lot of new construction happening thanks to Home Builder, um, yeah. but it's not necessarily uniform across the whole country. And we're seeing quite a few tradies having to move into other areas to be able to be. Um, Um, to be busy but also a lot of them were um, uh, you know perhaps using two or three um, uh, people in their in their team they're now down to one and they're less hours so that's going to be another issue another area is retail and I think retail is probably going to be the real bellwether there are so many closures of small retail outlets and so many of those are actually now uh, if you know, if you go down some of the, for example, I, I live near Wollongong. If you go down Wollongong, there is row after row after row of closed retail establishments down a number of the streets. I'm seeing it everywhere I go, and that's another area that I think is going to be um, very concerning. And then the final one is the hospitality and restaurants and cafes. A lot of those have really struggled. I mean, and you know, hopefully they're beginning to see some, but a lot of them are already well under water. So I think it's going to be the small ends of town. Yeah, rather right. than the big end of town, and I'd argue that job keeper really was top end of town keeper and bank keeper, yeah. rather than real small businesses. So I would expect to see a lot of smaller businesses
0: yeah.
1: really fade away, and that's what my surveys are showing at the moment. And do you, are you are you
0: projecting this early next year? Is it later in the year? Are we talking March quarter, June quarter?
1: I think it's going to take probably six to 12 months to work through. So if you look at the global financial crisis in both Europe and in the US, the crisis hit and then it sort of echoed down for 18 months to two years before it really hit the bottom. In fact, the bottom of um, uh, house price falls and the height of delinquencies and failures was actually in year two and year three. So I'm expecting that to be slightly quicker this time because the, the bounce back perhaps was a bit quicker although it's still partial. We're still f- performing well below where we were. The unemployment rate's still a lot higher. And if you look at the last payroll numbers, they were way down compared with what people thought they were going to be, even this last time around. Job habits are up a little. So my assumption is there will be a little bit of, uh, of pullback, but I reckon it's going to be another year or so before we really see the full impact. So I keep saying to people, we are in the foothills mm. of the financial crisis. We are not actually in the exit lane of the financial crisis, right, that we've just gone through. We are, you know, we're in the early stages of it and it's going to get worse. Even the reserve banks saying it's going to be, um, you know, 8 point something percent employment unemployment end of the year and 6.5 percent two years later, if we're lucky.
0: But last week, the deputy chair came out and said that the recession was over.
1: Yeah, well, I think that was a bit of an overreach, frankly. And you know, it, it's it's mathematically true, right? Because it, if it if it drops ten percent, that's a fall. Yeah. If it moves up half a percent, it's a rise, right? Yeah. And so you could say, yeah, well, I've had two two quarters of a fall and then one quarter of a rise. But if the rise is only you know a very small amount, the economy is still way sl- lower, uh, smaller than it was a year ago. Yeah. Right. And that's the problem. I reckon it's going to be three to five years before the economy will be back to where it was. And we're going to have in that time lower migration. um, So probably less population. Um, You know, the, the budget forecast net negative migration for the next two years. That's pretty amazing.
0: It is amazing. Look, I've got one of my sons who was doing a a five-year university degree and he was thinking of as a double degree and he was thinking of sort of shortening it to one before the COVID hit and when COVID hit, I said, listen, you may as well, uh, you know, you may as well sit it out and and, and complete the full thing. Is there any silver lining in the, you know, I I know you said three to five years out. Is there any silver lining in the next 12 months?
1: Well, I think there are some opportunities. So I would say that there is a great opportunity for people who are able to think about perhaps... Creating a business, or you know, starting something new, perhaps they've had to switch jobs, or you know, so there is an opportunity. The second is, I think property is worth interesting to watch. I, I still expect property prices to fall further before they before they come up. There will be perhaps opportunities there later. Um, the third op- observation I'll make is that if only the government had a better attitude. And a better investment path, and in whereas investing in the things that were really there and sustainable for the long term, the infrastructure uh, programs and those sorts of things. And I do think we should encourage more um, manufacturing, not not just those those five or six areas, but more broadly, smaller firms who actually could grow and could become growth engines. Um, I would be looking for a whole series of programs to support those particular areas. We need a more productive manufacturing sector. Our manufacturing in Australia has gone through the floor in terms of the proportional total economy. And my own view is that that should be definitely reversed. The final point I'd make is, actually, we have an opportunity now to decouple ourselves slightly from China. We have become so China-dependent and so China-reliant in terms of our economy, that we've been myopic. There are many businesses who are completely exposed now to what China does. So this should give us an opportunity to think about alternative markets and alternative strategies um, to be able to actually go and do those things. And I'd also add PostScript and digital, of course, you know, all the stuff we're using now. Digital now has really come of age, which shows that you can do things that you couldn't have done previously and you can reach markets and you can reach people that you couldn't have done previously. So I think there are opportunities, There there are, you know, Blue, blue sky things that you can see, but I would say just don't take the mainstream story you know, too seriously. There are a lot of critical issues we have to navigate through, and unfortunately I feel that the uh, official story is not giving us the right basis on which to make decisions.
0: Well, uh, there's a very easy way of avoiding all of that uh, mainstream uh, uh, misinformation, and that is to do what I do when I get home: is I turn on my smart TV and I have subscribed uh, to your YouTube channel, uh, Walk the World DFA Analyst. And um, you know, uh, you, you're putting out a lot of content. You had a very busy this week. I think you had two shows in one day. Was it yesterday or the day before? <laughs> uh-huh. um,
1: and we're, we're
0: um, a bit mad. I would encourage our viewers and listeners to uh, to seek you out uh, on YouTube. Um, on uh, uh, Walk the World, is it Walk the World? DFA Analyst.
1: Yeah, yeah. So basically, the uh, YouTube channel is actually called Walk the World. Yeah. Um, but uh, you'll find me there. Or if you do digital finance analytics as a search on YouTube, I've also got a blog at digitalfinanceanalytics com and i put all my posts there i also on twitter as well as dfa analyst so that's where you can find me and i run live shows every tuesday at 8 p.m where we cover all sorts of things next week i've got a mortgage broker talking about uh, property dogs and property um uh, stars you know what's the difference between the two um so we always pick a, a thing to talk about and i post daily shows on finance economics policy matters and all those things. So, yeah, there's always there's always uh, at least one, um, what should I say, independent, hopefully objective, and maybe a slightly alternative voice that you can always get from, from DFN. I'm glad that you uh, watch some of my shows.
0: But your guests are also very interesting as well. I, I love those uh, those regulars that you get on Mondays and Fridays. <laughs> they're, they're fantastic. Thank you very much, Martin North, for joining. It's been a real privilege. Thank you so much
1: for coming along. So, well, I've enjoyed speaking with you and uh, meeting some of your, uh, your viewers too. Have a great day, and uh, we'll catch up again sometime down the track.
0: Thank you very much. Take it easy and thank you very much to all of our viewers. Cheers.